0: Welcome to Health Fail, where we explore failure in healthcare from the highly publicized to the never-before-told stories of failures that have birthed healthcare transformation and innovation.
1: On this episode of Health Fail, we sit down with Ed Marks to discuss how failure throughout his life and career has led to success in his present role as CIO at Cleveland Clinic.
0: I'm your host, Zach Jiwa.
1: And I'm your co-host, Michelle Noteboom. We hope you enjoy this episode of Health Fail.
0: Today we have a special guest coming to you live from Cleveland, Ohio, Mr. Ed Marks. Good morning, Ed. Hey, good morning, Zach and Michelle. Welcome to the podcast. So Ed, we've met a couple of times and I know you have a long um, relationship history with Michelle. You are currently serving as the chief information officer at the Cleveland Clinic. Congratulations, that's a big job. Thank you, yeah, it's definitely a privilege and honor. Awesome, and you've been in healthcare technology for a long time. This is not your first CIO gig. Uh, you know a few things about large health systems and a few things about healthcare and a few things about healthcare technology. Do you want to give us a little bit about your background and experience before we jump into all the hard questions?
2: Sure. I've been very fortunate and blessed in my career to work in a number of amazing organizations and along the way just learning from other individuals and leading me here to. The Cleveland Clinic so I'm so thankful for everyone who's helped me along the way
0: awesome well I'll let Michelle jump into the questions where do we want to start we want to start with personal failure or professional failure we're going to get to all the success but
2: yeah I'll take personal failure for 200 personal failure for 200
1: <laughs> share with us how have you experienced failures in your life
2: yeah you guys go right for the heart and the jugular but it's but it's all good um uh, there's not enough. This is the 200. Th- 200 yeah, I know, right? We haven't even hit the Daily Double I know. yet. I might just jump right to it. You know, life, if you live, and especially if you live a good life, you're going to run into a ton of failure. And I certainly have my share of stories of failure. Probably the most prominent one for me was about five years ago. I ended a th- 30 years of marriage in a divorce. You never start off when you make your vows and get married thinking you're going to get a divorce. And so it's a hard, hard thing that you have to go through. And I consider it a failure because again, I didn't begin thinking at some point I'd get a divorce. So it's a, it's a tough thing, but like with every failure, you have to look at what you can learn from the situation and how you can grow from it. So I've certainly taken that angle with all my failures, be it personal or professional.
0: And that's that's awesome that, I mean, yeah, we, I guess we did go for the jugular and probably didn't know that we were going for the jugular. So um, 30 years of marriage, I've often wondered, I've often asked, um, you know, well, I guess I, I start with the belief that if you can make it, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years, that um, that you can make it forever and and don't take that as, as a negative i know that that's been probably really hard for you but can you talk to me about since we're talking about marriage like um we can talk about what led to failure and you know if you don't want to get in the gory details that's fine but you know what what have you learned from that failure if we're talking about marriage what have you learned from that failure how does how to succeed
2: yeah i think one thing is alignment so when you're i was i had one girlfriend which was who became my wife and so i was 17 years old i got married at 20. and you tend to overlook any misalignment because you're in love it's puppy love there's some infatuation and again i was at a very young age and so you kind of skip over that alignment but over time because i asked myself the same question why wouldn't you know it 10 years or 15 years or, you know, ideally before you get married, but over time, (laughs) right. You know, if you're 1% off in alignment over time, that 1% becomes magnified. And I think uh, my former wife and I realized after our children left that we were headed sort of different directions and it wasn't a negative on any one person. She's a lovely, lovely woman. And I wish nothing the best for her. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we agreed to an amicable separation and divorce is I wanted the best for her as well as for myself. So we just came to a realization after 30 years that, look, she wanted to pursue a certain direction. I wanted to pursue a certain direction. And that that sort of that 1% that was there when we first got married became, you know, maybe 25, 30, 35, 40%, maybe even higher difference. And so it was just, you know, we still have a lot of years ahead of us. And so again, you take what you you learn, all the good things, and you take some of the harder lessons that you learn and you apply it to your next, you know, in this case, next relationship, so that you avoid those mistakes and ensure
0: alignment. Ed, you said something something really important there that I think applies to um, probably every aspect of our life. Um, if you start off with a one degree separation you can end off uh, way off course it, it it gave me the visual and made me think of um, you know a ship that departs you know New York harbor um, and maybe headed to to England or, or Europe or something like that one one percent off uh, starting from there you may end up in Africa I don't know what the traje- trajectory is but one uh, percent becomes a a pretty magnanimous uh, difference uh, of where you hope to end up. Um, That's the visual that I got whenever you said that. Yeah, you have to make a lot of micro
2: adjustments. I heard a similar analogy with an airplane and that they make thousands and thousands of adjustments in flight. They're very minuscule, but it's for the same reason because maybe the jet stream takes them, puts some pressure on a certain direction or some speed resistance some weather, those sort of things. And so they're making constant micro adjustments. And I think that's one of the learnings is that, you know, there will always be things that come up, whether it's a work project or a personal project that could take you off course. And you've got to be very aware of your compass and then make those micro adjustments to get back on course. Otherwise, like you said, you'll find yourself in Africa when you meant to go to England for a project that was supposed to be $5 million ends up $10 million.
1: So, Ed, I know that you're a big family man and you have a lot of kids. How have you modeled failure for your family? Wait a minute.
2: What's a lot of kids? So, I'm I'm blessed with 5 children. Wow. Yeah, okay. Sorry to interrupt you. That's a that's more a lot. than you. And how old are they now if you if you don't mind sharing? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a, one more there's than There's a me. big test, but yes. So, I brought two. So, I was remarried and that was sort of you know, not sorta, of, but the very good thing that came out of a of a failure. And I brought two children age 31 and 25. And my wife, she brought three children and they are age 24, 21 and 16. So it, it, five altogether.
0: Okay. And so this is, this is recent. You, you ended up uh, ending a 30 year marriage and you've, you've been remarried. Yes. Hearing, I was, recently.
2: no, I was very fortunate to get remarried and we're headed up on our fourth year anniversary on November 7th. Oh, congratulations. We are Still in alignment because we've made those micro adjustments that I learned from, you know, the first time.
0: <laughs> there you go. Learning yeah. from failure. All right, Michelle, sorry, I interrupted you. The no, question no, so was, what,
1: what do you tell your children and in terms of what you learn and learning from your failures?
2: Yeah, this wasn't my first failure, obviously. So they watched their dad, just a variety, right? We all, every day, I perhaps there's a uh, one failure or, or another. And one thing I always tried to model is to be transparent and be accountable and then show what you learn from it. So there's no use in hiding things and obviously you can't hide a divorce, but you could hide other things, but we try to talk about them. And so one very simple thing, and we still do this today is at the dinner table. We talk about highs and lows. What was your high of the day? What was the low of the day? And, so we share, sometimes it's a failure. Oh, I I said this to a person and it was really mean and I should not have done it. And I went back and I apologized to him. That's an example of what kind of the low, some people call it happy crappy, we call it highs and lows. And so we have that dialogue over dinner. It's like, okay, what, what were the good, good things that happened? What were the bad things? But anyways, to your question, we, we try to share on a daily basis. Wow, this is something I ran into today. This is something I didn't handle very well. So it's to be transparent and then say, share what you learned from that experience. And, you know, I had, uh, another failure was I was on this quest, you know, to climb the seven summits, the highest peak on every continent. And I think it was summer at three or four where I had HAPE, which is high altitude pulmonary edema. And so I almost died and had to be airlifted off the mountain. This was in, oh my yeah, this was in Argentina. So, uh, uh when was this uh this was 2014 so this is uh acacangua which is in uh near Mendoza near near Patagonia in uh, along the Chile Argentinian border but the point is I I said look i I failed I tried I did everything I could for success it was the first time I didn't summit a mountain that I tried but what I learned was I was doing too much I was doing a lot with triathlon I was doing a lot climbing mountains and then I had a very in- intense job as a CIO at a different organization of course my marriage my family and it was just it was a sign I took it as a sign that you know what it's time to slow down a little bit so after that I retired from mountain climbing because it was just too much and so that's what I learned I shared that with my kids and I apologize to them it's like you know I was doing too much And I need to stop doing all that effort and just really focus on these other core things. So that's an example of sharing, you know, whether it's a small thing at the dinner table or a larger life failure that happens, it's just being transparent, sharing what you learned, what you're going to do about it in the future so that they can see it. Cause obviously they're going to run into failures and have, and they need to sort of pick up on the same positive attributes of how to handle it.
0: That's awesome, Ed.
2: What? Uh, so, did you get six of the seven? Is that what you ended up with? No, no. I think three, three or four uh, before this happened, and then I retired. So. I'll never still pretty incredible. go back and try the other ones. Although sometimes, <laughs> sometimes
0: <laughs> you're I'm you're not going to restart.
2: Sometimes I'm tempted, but I, I learned that lesson. And as tempting as it might be, it's not going to be worth it in the end. So I've decided not to pursue it.
0: Yeah, well, it's really great that you had the opportunity to to not only not only set the challenge in front of you and work toward it, but that your kids got to see it and that your kids got to see um, see the failure. I think that's that's really important that you share and that that you share that transparency and that honesty with them. Um, so why don't we why don't we step into um, kind of the professional side? You have uh, you have had a very very full career in healthcare, and that's all I really know you from. Um, other than uh, we'll talk about your books here in just a little bit, but
1: and, and earn. Many accolades
0: over the year. Yeah. CIO, CIO, of CIO. The year. <laughs> yeah. CIO of the year. Um, have you always been in healthcare? I guess that's really my first question. Yeah. I started off in, as, a, as a janitor
2: in a healthcare facility when I was 16. and Got to start much, somewhere. Yes. And it was awesome. I loved it. And I've uh, continued down that track. Yeah. So basically my entire
0: career. That's awesome. So, let's talk about. Um, you probably have a ton of, of conversation stories to to share about failure in in business as a CIO. Um, I was always fascinated. I, I served as what what I say is I served as a little CIO in a very large pond with Ascension early in my career, and you know I can certainly uh, recount some of the failures that we experienced. But we're talking about living through and working through. Um, mm-hmm. thus far, some of the greatest advancements in technology, period, over the last 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And and you've done it in healthcare where, you know, the the biggest um, and greatest uh, uh, opportunities are, but it's also been the, you know, the biggest industry where I think technology has lagged behind. So why don't you share with some of your experiences in, in failure in business uh, in the healthcare environment?
2: Yeah, it's been... I was just so thankful, you know, when I was 16 as a janitor, I had a sense, I didn't, it wasn't an audible voice, but I heard a voice inside myself saying that I needed to serve in healthcare. I didn't know how it would manifest itself, but I knew that I was called to healthcare. And I've just been blessed in the sense that these amazing opportunities opened up for me to work with amazing teams. I, I've done nothing on my own. It's all a reflection of the organization and teams that I served with. In fact, last evening, I was invited out by my former, so I worked in Cleveland previously at another very fine healthcare organization. And the initial team where I was just a director, and I had made the move to Cleveland, that initial team invited me out and we had dinner together a, and it's probably from 15 years ago, we hadn't seen each other. And I was just sitting there looking around that table saying, oh my gosh, these are the people that made me because it was from there that I happened into the CIO role at that organization, which sort of launched my, you know, quote unquote, executive career. And it's like, wow, I owe these guys, the price of dinner is nothing uh, compared to what I owed them. So anyways, everything is really about being fortunate to serve with some amazing people and some amazing organizations. And surely along the way, many, many failures, just like on the personal side, but the same principles is like, how do you grow? How do you fail forward? How do you learn? And so, you know, one example, I could think of easy examples from every organization where I've served, but I think about that one and recall a time when we were doing this big printer consolidation. So it was going to save us uh, projected a massive amount of dollars. And what I didn't realize, because my financial acumen wasn't as strong as it might be today, was what the cost was to start and initiate that project. And so when we had made a commitment already to the particular vendor, I had committed our organization to a couple millions of dollars that I didn't really have approval for. <laughs> that'll that'll and, get you in trouble. You know, that was a hard, yeah, that was really hard. And I remember calling, I reported the CFO at the time and I remember calling him to tell him, you know, I made this huge mistake and I obligated the organization to a couple million dollars. And I'm hoping if the ROI turns out that it'll be very worthwhile, but he was very gracious to me and he used it as a teaching moment. And what I learned was, look, you've got to really work in the broader team, not just the team of IT, but the team of supply chain, the team of finance and realize this was my first time as a CIO and just sort of learning the ropes. No one really taught me how to be a CIO. I was really a fish out of water. And so that's an example of a pretty massive failure. But what I learned is to make finance my best friend. And that's what I've tried to do ever since then. And I've achieved a lot more success doing that.
0: I think what you're saying here, it's, it's something that I learned in my career as well, but um, especially as a CIO, people tend to look at CIOs or the information officer and say, oh, they just do technology. And I think if you're a CIO and you just do technology, first of all, it's, it's a farce. It's not true because technology does cost a lot of money, but you actually have to understand the business operations um, and actually understand the finances and why you make the decisions in a hospital or healthcare setting in order to be a good CIO. I didn't understand that when I was a kid. I think I was 24, 25 years old when I first became, you know, had the title of CIO. And uh, yeah, I mean, for for anyone who wants to be a CIO of a hospital or generally a CIO, um, they should know that lesson, right? What you just talked about there that CIO is not just about technology. It's got to be about finance. It's got to be about understanding the operations and what you're trying to accomplish. And I think the other thing that, um, that you said there that just almost made me chuckle is we're talking about printers and healthcare. <laughs> right? uh, I, I remember a very similar um, a, a very similar uh, project yeah. that I worked on with fax machines. And this, you know, in, in the large scale of things, we're not talking about that long ago and we're talking about printers and fax machines making a huge difference in technology and healthcare, and it's just we wouldn't think about that in, in you know right. most yeah. other businesses today yeah. outside of maybe auto manufacturing and banking
1: so zach i hope that help the whole whole, whole fax thing is on your resume
0: yeah yeah good changed good. out 20 faxes for you know multifunction printers
1: <laughs> so Ed, i want to i know one thing that that uh, that makes me think of is that in, in, in healthcare is unique to other industries, in particular the clinical side of things that you take have to consider. Touch on that. How do you, how do you think that success and failure in healthcare is different than other industries? Yeah,
0: how is it unique?
2: Well, clearly there is the whole aspect of you're dealing with patients' lives. I recall I was recruiting a senior person from Sherwin Williams which is a fantastic company headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio and he said well when I recruited him I basically said look do you and nothing against paint I love paint and again it's a fantastic company but <laughs> who
1: doesn't like paint know,
2: yeah my challenge to him was you know do you want to change the world change people's lives or do you want to you know further automate your paint processing capabilities so that you can pull another penny profit out of a gallon of paint. And it was pretty convincing for that individual. And because you do have an impact, but on the, on the flip side, that's a heavy responsibility. You know, if you screw something up on the, on the paint manufacturing and you slow down the production line, there's a financial loss. But if you introduce a technology and make an error on the healthcare side, you could be losing a patient. So it's not for everyone. And that's, you know, that's certainly the big difference. And that's why healthcare tends to be a little bit further behind. There's a couple other reasons, but that's certainly one of the main ones is we're very conservative in that sense, you know, to do no harm. And that is certainly, you know, probably the most obvious uniqueness uh, within healthcare. I think the other thing is that, especially in IT, we've been, in growing and it's changing. And I'm so glad I've seen the recent hirings of some high profile positions elsewhere in the country for CIOs and the advent of the chief digital officer. And many of them are coming from other industries. It didn't have to be that way, but I, I think it's uh, very helpful because, you know, the, our hiring practices have been, for instance, you know, we have a candidate profile and it says must have 20 years healthcare IT experience. Oh, I
0: why? Hate those. Yeah. I yeah. Hate those. Why?
2: And so I've tried to always have at least one of my direct reports who came from outside of healthcare so that they would bring new thinking. I had a chief security officer who came from the Marine Corps and he was awesome. He brought in all sorts of new ideas and different ways of thinking. I hired someone else from finance as a direct report from the financial industry. And he also brought in a different way of thinking. And then I try, the other thing I try to do is hire a lot of clinicians. So non IT people, see, you can teach IT, but you can't teach, you know, some of the other skills that these clinicians bring to the table. So half of my direct reports are. Doctors and nurses.
0: Yeah, I, I experienced that uh, when I worked for um, the federal government uh, as as an innovation fellow, where I was kind of the only guy from healthcare that they brought in. It's a, it's a it's a little bit of a challenge and struggle because there is some some depth in healthcare that you want people to understand, and you don't want to have to train all all of it. Um, but the value of having someone from outside the industry is is super. Uh, It's super invigorating for, I think maybe because they've failed a lot more. Um, If you think about consumer technology as an example, we've had so many iterative failures in consumer technology that we're just so far ahead of what we're implementing. Um, I think regulation in healthcare probably has. I I guess that's kind of one of my questions. My my next two questions are really, um, how does the regulatory aspect of healthcare you know either create or prevent the failures that we need to happen and i think the the next the, the next question that i'd like you to talk about because you're such a luminary in the industry is where are we going in healthcare where are we going in healthcare technology what's the next thing we talk about blockchain and ai and i'm so tired of all the buzzwords but you know where do you really think that technology is going to play a major impact in in healthcare?
2: Yeah. So on your first question, we are the most regulated industry outside of nuclear. And certainly I think it hurts us a little bit. Obviously you want the safeguards. So that's good. But like I'm in a clinical trial, we won't have time to go into it right now, but I'm in a clinical trial right now. And this is amazing, amazing technology with amazing outcomes. They're already using it in Europe. Okay. It's going to be years. I was talking to the physician who's administering this trial and he said it's going to be a few more years before they finish all the trials they go through all the FDA approvals all these sort of things when they're doing it in Europe and that with again without getting into detail it's very simple it's very straightforward so imagine complex things so that hurts us a little bit where we're going you know I heard a colleague that I respect say you know don't predict more than five or six quarters ahead because things change so much. Where where I see things going is really with voice. I call voice sort of the new mobile, you know, five years ago, mobile was the rage. And I think voice is is what's needed. You know, I, I do a couple things. What, what do you mean by that when you say voice? So voice. And so let me give you one example, two examples. So one example is when you meet with your clinician in an exam room, if you even go to an exam room, that's a whole nother thing that we can talk about, but let's just say in a traditional <laughs> environment, there should be no keyboard. There should be no screen. It should be you and this person who cares deeply about you talking. And so with ambient technology and this stuff exists today, we're, we're actually going to be experimenting here and I believe this is the future. You just talk and then that way it's better for the clinician. They don't have to do order entry or, you know, type, which they don't appreciate and I wouldn't either. And it's all done in the background. And and, and you also have, you know, what we call augmented intelligence going on. They probably have an earpiece that's feeding them information of additional questions to ask based on answers and based on all the research data and all the published papers. So there's no way they could be calculating all this in their mind while they're listening. But a computer can. So not only is this all voice enables, but then there's a there's a voice speaking to them in their ear, saying, "Okay, based on that answer, now ask, go deeper, ask this question, and sort of have these algorithms." So I think, and
0: augmented reality really is what we're talking yeah. about, combined with uh, you know capturing all the data from from any transaction. Yeah, and it
2: helps with caregiver burnout. They, again, they don't have to spend all their pajamas, what we call pajama time at home, you know, catching up on their notes. So I we really believe that's... Do doctors wear pajamas? I thought they just wore shirts <laughs> yeah. all the time. They look like pajamas sometimes. The other thing yeah. is I work in the OR once a week now. And so I get to see a lot of possibilities for voice. So I think the OR is another area that's ripe for disruption. Obviously, it's already disrupted with great innovations, with robotics and things of that nature. But there's still a lot of things that could be automated through voice. And... So that's another thing that I'm really focused on and my team's focused on is how do we make life easier for the caregivers in the OR that will lead to an even more safer environment and ideally higher quality outcomes. So I think there's a lot of potential for voice there as well.
1: So, Ed, I know we need to wrap up, but I want to ask you a couple quick questions. Obviously, one way that we met was uh, through his talk when you're writing on there. You've been very prolific over the years. You've in a couple of books. What inspires you to write? What, why should we read your books? Why should we read your current LinkedIn post that you have every week or every couple of weeks?
0: Yeah, and so you have two books, right? Extraordinary Tales from a Rather Ordinary Guy. I think that's on my bookshelf. I have not uh, read Voices of Innovation. So, yeah, great yeah. question.
1: Share, us, share some details on those. Yeah, yeah. I'm, this is
0: your opportunity to plug your own stuff, yeah, I, man. I don't know that any.
2: Yeah. I don't know that anyone should read, read any of it, but what I do like Voices of Innovation. Uh, the, the, the purpose, the, the reason the first book was written, you know, Extraordinary Tales, was because when I speak, people always ask me, can you please write a book? Can you please put these stories in a book? And I did. And that way people who like those stories can read and hopefully be inspired with ideas of how this kid, you know, from Bavaria. I, was a, I, was a, I grew up in Lederhosen in a village in Bavaria, and, uh, and then I had all these failings in life. I was flunking. I flunked out of college at first. I got caught for shop, lip, shoplifting, joyriding at age 14. I just had a bad, sounds like fun. I was like the black sheep of the family, <laughs> I just had to, but I turned, but yeah, but I turned, it was fun, <laughs> but it turned out. Okay. And so that was really the, the book. So, but voices is awesome because we talk about innovations A buzzword buzzword like digital is. And And then it's like, well, how do you do it? And not everyone is going to be like the Cleveland Clinic where we have this innovation center that I'm looking at across the street and it's got a bunch of FTE and a bunch of money, a bunch of venture capital, and it's amazing. And we've put out all these inventions and not everyone, that's maybe 10 hospital health systems in the country or the world. What about the other thousands and thousands? It's like, oh my gosh, what do you do? So this book is full of examples, not from me, but they're from real people who are doing innovation across the globe in small hospitals, in public health hospitals, in every uh, thing imaginable, including the vendor side, and so then they use a model that HIMs developed, and it's just a model. It doesn't. It's not perfect, but it's not meant to be. And you can like, hey, how do I do innovation? Oh, look, here's four examples of how someone did innovation, or here's. There's actually forty examples. It's endorsed by thirty-five. I use the word luminaries, you know, from across the globe. It's a, I reread it a couple times. at first I was like, ah, and then as I kept reading, I thought, man, if I had this 15 years ago, wow, how cool is that? It's other people's stories. It's nothing about me. The best part of the book is that hundred percent of the proceeds go to, uh, fund cancer research at the Cleveland clinic so that we eliminate cancer from our vocabulary. So my mom died of cancer. And so I said, Hey, this book, I don't need the money. And I don't want anyone ever to think, oh, he's doing that for his own benefit. So I'm like, you know what? It's not for my own benefit. I'm trying to help other people who've helped me and all the proceeds go away. So that's the story.
0: I was not aware of that. That's that's awesome and extraordinary. So again, the two books you've put out are Extraordinary Tales from a Rather Ordinary Guy by Ed Marks and Voices of Innovation by Ed Marks. Um, but really stories that you've, you've encountered through, uh, your lifetime and all proceeds go to, um, cancer research there at the Cleveland clinic. Is that what you just said? Correct. Yeah. Oh. Tossig. That's yeah, a, it's called Tossig. That's amazing. So I, we need to wrap up just to, um, one, be gracious with your, with your time. And we're so thankful that you uh, spared some time for us this morning. I know you're a busy guy. Um, Also, we know that our listeners don't want to listen to more than 30 minutes because that's about (laughs) the commute time, right? But kind of last question that we, that we tend to ask or close down with, which is um, what is your, what is the book that you're currently reading or what's your, you know, what's your favorite podcast? What's, what's queued up right now, whether you're listening or reading? Yeah, I love. you want to share with the listeners your podcast, of course.
2: Uh, oh, <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, Big Unlock by Damo Consulting. It's a gentleman I know named Patty who puts that out because he's got also great speakers like you do. Um, love based culture, of course, because that was one of your last
0: <laughs> podcasts right. with uh,
2: Ivo Mr. Nelson. Ivo. Yeah, so that was awesome. Uh, it's a great book. I'm a firm believer. Um, that love is reactive while fear is reactive so uh those are the that's a book uh example t- and and a podcast example so but i'm always reading it's always you know that that's the other thing you know you got to keep listening podcasts read you got to continue to stay on
0: top of your game to be effective amen to that all right ed thank you so much for joining michelle and i this morning you want to add any closing notes michelle y-
1: yes ed Yes. Come to Austin and we'll have yeah, cocktails or absolutely. something.
0: Well,
2: I'll let you know next time Simon and I are down.